Hello and welcome to the Frozen Light podcast. A podcast aimed at staying in touch with the PMLD community in the age of coronavirus. I'm Lucy Garland and I'm one of the co-artistic directors of Frozen Light. I'm Amber Onak Gregory, and I'm the other co-artistic director of Frozen Light. Frozen Light are a multi-sensory theatre company that tours sensory theatre across the UK for audiences with profound and multiple learning disabilities. So thank you for joining us today. And on today's podcast, we have Stephen Kingdom from the Disabled Children's Partnership. And we were really interested in talking to the Disabled Children's Partnership because During lockdown, they have put out a survey which reached over 4,000 families of disabled children. And the survey was called Hashtag Left in Lockdown, Parents and Carers' Experiences of Lockdown. And it was absolutely fascinating, but also really quite sad reading about how parents and families and children with disabilities have really been left behind during this time. What's been great about the campaign is actually when the results were released, it got a huge amount of media attention, which I think is one of the earliest times that people started talking about people with disabilities and learning disabilities during lockdown. So we're really excited to have Stephen on today. So we'll just give him a ring. So hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Frozen Light podcast. So can you tell us a bit about the Disabled Children's Partnership and how the partnership of so many different charities working together came from? So the the Disabled Children's Partnership is a coalition of, well, I think we're just about to hit 80 charities. I'm just sorting out a couple of new members and that'll take us to 80 charities, which is, and other organisations, which is absolutely brilliant. And we work closely with families to campaign for better support for disabled children and their families. The, I think the, the, coalition came together in 2017 I think from a sort of sector concern that there was a real need for a strong voice for families for disabled children and I think with a particular focus on health and social care that those were areas that were neglected um, and children and disabled children were really falling behind in those areas and the coalition's taken an approach um, of seeking to raise public awareness of the challenges that families face of the lack of support that families get and through that to try and drive change um, and drive uh, policymakers, government to invest and to uh, improve services for families. So the coalition's led by 11 charities and then we have the further sort of nearly 70 um, supporting charities. When it was launched in July 2017, there were about 35 members. So we've steadily grown over the time. And I think one of our strengths as a coalition is the variety of types of organisation we have. So we have some big national charities like the National Autistic Society, like Sense, Scope, Action for Children, Contact, who have that sort of national view. And then we're down to really some quite local provider charities as well who provide short breaks and other services in local areas. So we get a variety of views, a variety of experiences. Each of the charities brings their own sort of parent base and family base with them in in terms of those experiences plus we work directly with families and and with parents so we hope from that point of view we get a a wide range of expertise and experience to bring to bear and to put reality on the the stories that we're we're telling to the public and to government 
As for me, uh, well, I was before this, uh, immediately before this, I was on a career break cycling around the country raising money for uh, contact. Um, but before that, I was a long-term civil servant. I worked on policy on education, children's services and health over about 25 years, including working on the 2014 Special Educational Needs and Disability reforms as they went through Parliament in 2013 and 2014. So I left the civil service in 2016, had a bit of a career break, and then joined the, the coalition, joined the Disabled Children's Partnership uh, in early 2018. And has your work become much busier due to all the research that you guys have been doing throughout this lockdown? Has that had a big impact on your role? Yeah, I think so. We've been, um, we've been busy trying to get the message out. Um, and I think we're really pleased that the, how the survey's gone and the amount of uh, media attention it's got. And to be fair, the amount of engagement we're getting from government and from uh, officials to discuss what we've found. So in that sense, yes, it's, um, it's been pretty full on over the last, uh, last couple of months. Because in, in May, you reached out to over 4,000 families to ask how they'd been impacted during the lockdown. Can you tell us a bit more about the findings of the survey? We put the survey out on social media and more widely and spread it through our networks. And, and we had over 4,000 responses, which was absolutely brilliant. But the overall picture that they gave is a pretty depressing one. A picture of uh, families of exhaustion, anxiety, confusion and fear. Parents reporting an increased uh, caring load for themselves and for their for the whole family. It comes through very strongly the sort of burden on uh, siblings as well. They feel exhausted, stressed, anxious, and frankly abandoned by society. Of course, a lot of the, you know the context here is a lot of these families were not receiving the support they really needed prior to lockdown. We didn't come together to campaign because of lockdown. We were campaigning about lack of support beforehand, but it has just got you know significantly worse. And of those of those families who were receiving support, three quarters said that just stopped altogether under lockdown. And that's resulting in families seeing decline in their mental and physical health of the parents, of the children, of the siblings, real concerns about the pressure on managing children's behaviour and the impact on children's well-being, mental well-being, the strain of managing homeschooling, clearly a big issue for all parents uh, has been, but I think, again, a whole magnitude uh, more so for families with disabled children, a lot saying that their schools weren't differentiating or providing specific support they needed because of their child's particular needs. So we'll worry about the impact of that on their children's learning and communications, on their mental and physical health. And, you know, just simple things like their, their friendships have been uh, negatively impacted. And on top of all that, real financial pressures on families, uh, either or both through um, reduced income and uh, additional costs on families. And were you surprised by any of the results? Were, did anything come out in the surveys that you weren't expecting? I think yes and no is the answer in terms of surprise. I'm not sure the, the themes were a surprise. I think we probably expected those, but I think the scale, um, the scale of the concern and, and, and the pressure on families, as I said, I think that, you know, 70, 76% saying that all support they were getting had stopped altogether. That, that, that kind of scale was what probably surprised and shocked and, and frankly horrified us. From your findings, how do you think that families could be supported during this time by society and you know the wider outside world i think one of the one of the simplest things i think we heard a lot about was just 
the feeling of being, I said, the feeling of being ignored, and a real desire just just to see some acknowledgement of the, the the position that families are in and the and their position and the and the feeling that you know when there were the daily press conferences, they really didn't talk to families with disabled children. They did, really didn't talk about disabled children. Some of the messaging, I mean, we heard a lot, going back to schools, we heard a lot about how places would still be available for children with education, health and care plans. Well, that was the theory, but the reality was completely different. Through most of the lockdown, less than 20% of children with education, health and care plans actually were in school because schools were saying they couldn't provide for them or parents didn't feel schools could provide for them or the risk assessment said it was more appropriate for them to be at home. So while society might have generally thought, oh, these children are right because they're in school, that really wasn't what's happening. So, so first and foremost, some acknowledgement and some understanding of the position families were in. But of course, that's not enough. You need practical support as well and real action from government, um, better financial support, making sure there is support in caring, getting short breaks up and running, innovative approaches to that kind of that kind of support, in-home support, domiciliary support, getting those sort of services back in place as quickly as possible. I think when lockdown happens, probably a bit of an understanding that would have an impact immediately and maybe for the first month. But as that becomes two months and three months, that support really needed to come to come back in. And what families need now is to see a really clear route map for them, specific to them and their families out of lockdown, how things will progress, how services will come back in, how they'll be supported during the summer. And with schools returning in the autumn, how they'll be supported for their children back to school. And, you know, for many of these children, they may still not be able to go back to school in September. So what support will be in place then uh, to help families? I think one of the things that has come out from us doing this podcast and speaking to families is they still could have had access to carers that they had before, but they chose for the safety of their family to not use that, even though they were told they could have that back at a later time. What I think was really tricky as lockdown eases is, as you say, there's been very little roadmap of knowing where to go. So families are kind of doing their own research and their own risk assessments about when it's safe to have people back in their homes and kind of making their own assumptions based on their own personal breaking points, really. There's been very little information on, okay, so we've been told to not see anyone that we've made, you know, even though that anyone is very important in our lives, we've taken that away. But when can you start that reintroduction and what's the safest way of, of, of that happening? I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the government's message seems to have been uh, increasingly use common sense. Well, common sense is, is a is an easy thing to say and, and a much harder thing to judge in reality and, and even more so when your your position and your situation isn't isn't common i mean one of the things we heard a lot of parents said to us about what they would appreciate was things like how the the rules around social distancing or uh, social interactions worked so it would have been helpful if earlier they'd been allowed to extend their bubbles because losing the support of relatives who would normally provide informal support that's another cause of increased pressure on families because they couldn't have grandparents come and look after the children. They couldn't have uh, their own um, their own brothers or sisters come and look after their nieces and nephews. Um, so a bit more clarity on, on, as you say, on how that works for, the, for individual families is, is really important. Because we've spoken to a lot of families who have taken the decision to completely shield, but not necessarily got the letter because they're thinking that 
their thoughts is that somebody thought another agency was going to send the letter and that and the letter never got sent. But then suddenly on August the 1st, they've been told, oh, you don't have to shield. And families are just left going, I don't know what to do. And I'm just going to try and do what I think is best for my family. Yeah, I think that lack of trust point is is massively important. And I think some of the communications, you know, it feels like the order they've gone is really unhelpful. So talking about that relaxation or, sorry, ending of shielding on 1st of August, well, more guidance is promised during July on what that means, but that hasn't come out yet. The announcement was made, and I don't think a lot of professionals knew what it meant. So families would be phoning their pediatrician or phoning, you know, their therapist or who they who they trust. And they wouldn't know the answers. And actually, I mean, my advice to families as, 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 the, as the information goes out is talk to your, talk to your trusted professionals and, and listen to them because they, they know your family, they know your situation um, and they can give you that professional advice. But they weren't ready. Those professionals weren't ready to give that advice at the time government said shielding is going to end on 1st of August. It's, it's incredibly difficult for government and it's an incredibly difficult communication, but it does feel that it could have been handled better and particularly particularly families in the hardest situations and and uh, and goes for adults as well um seem to be those ones whose messaging hasn't been tailored and one of the aims of this podcast has been to document the experiences of the pmld community in lockdown i know that you guys have also been collecting stories from families is this something that you you do all the time as the disabled children's partnership or is this something that new that's come out of lockdown? Can you tell us a bit more about the stories that you've collected and where we can find them? It was certainly, you say it's something we always do. It was only where the campaign started from was very much about telling family stories. So the initial phase of the Disabled Children's Partnership campaigning was called Secret Life of Us. And we, we had a series of blogs and videos, families telling their stories in their own words about their lives and about the impact of, of not having the... Uh, the services and support they need and we, we carried that on through our second phase uh, give it back campaign and now and our left in lockdown as our latest uh, hashtag the publication of our survey findings has lots of quotes and, and little snippets from families within it and we just started adding more blogs to our website disabledchildrenspartnership.org.uk under the secret life of us banner but we're adding more blogs to that um, of what life in lockdown has been like and what it's been like to be left in lockdown We've got about three up so far. Uh, we'll be putting more up and we'll be sharing them on our social media. And we'd really encourage people to email us with their stories so that we can share those as well. And who do they email? Email disabledchildrens.partnership at mencap.org.uk. Just out of interest in terms of who your audience is for those stories, what is the audience you guys are aiming for and who is the audience that you get? Yeah, this is, I mean, going back to the sort of start of Secret Life of Us, this is this is obviously always the hardest thing that you, you know, we've got a, a decent Twitter following, we get decent coverage on social media, but there's an element you're talking to other people who understand more than what our aim is to talk to, um, to talk to people who, who don't understand and raise awareness in the general public. One of our key statistics, which I think came from some scope work, but I may be wrong on that, that when we launched was that 43% of the general public say they didn't know any disabled people. A really shocking finding and, and trying to increase that understanding of amongst the general public of the realities of life was a key aim of the partnership because by doing that you put pressure on politicians 
and policymakers to make change. That was our, our sort of logical theory of change to, to drive change. Um, so that's always a struggle. Uh, I, talked, I mentioned our Give It Back campaign, which we launched in June last year, particularly around funding for social care. We did that in partnership with the Sun newspaper. And I'm, I'm sure there'll be some people who think uh, we shouldn't work with the Sun newspaper. But that's been absolutely brilliant because by getting stories in the Sun, and they've, they've published a, a whole number of stories about families, that gets us to an audience we wouldn't otherwise reach uh, in the general public. And we had a really, really good petition, which the Sun helped push, uh, which we handed in to the Chancellor, as the Chancellor was then back in the autumn. And we got, we got signatories on that who we, the kind of people we wouldn't normally have got to. So having those kind of media partnerships has been really good and the Sun have, have continued pushing through our, um, our work during lockdown as well. So that's been really positive. I think that's something that we've found ourselves with this podcast. We really do want to use this podcast as a way of staying in touch with the PMLD community. So of course we want that community to be part of the audience. But as theatre makers, we would really love there to be a wider audience of theatre programmers, theatre makers who are part of the audience of this podcast. But it's really tricky because that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a certain group of people in society and their experiences. And one of the funny things about the theatre sector is obviously often so much is about theatre as it should be, but very little focus on audience and actually without mm. audience what is theatre anyway well that's a big question at the moment isn't it <laughs> working with the sun is absolutely who you should be working with because we can all shout really loudly into our echo chamber who we're all going to agree with us and, and be, be the same but as you say you need to be reaching that 60 odd percent of people that don't haven't met someone with a um with a disability it's been a really positive partnership and i think it's helped because They've obviously got political connections as well, particularly with the, the Conservative Party. So that's got us more access to to politicians than we might have got otherwise. So it's been a really a really positive partnership, and they've been been really supportive. and And actually, you then learn that there are journalists with the Sun who have their own personal experiences and, and real commitment to the issues because of that. And we got as far as having a, a specific question asked at the by a Sun journalist at the daily press conferences when they still happen. So that was that was great. I mean, great to get the question asked. I have to say, the answer from Matt Hancock was pretty poor, but it, it was at least got the uh, the question asked. So we create theatre primarily for adult and young adult audiences with profound and multiple learning disabilities, and are aware that adults with learning disabilities can be hard to reach. Are you aware of any initiatives that are researching the impact that the lockdown has had on adults? Yeah, I am. Mencap actually are doing a survey at the moment. It's live at the moment. You can find it on their social channels, particularly focused on social care, I think, but still same kind of issues, same kind of surveys we as we carried out. Um, so it'd be great if people uh, have a chance to, uh, to fill that in. Certainly, my experience is that quite often when we put any message out about what's happening with children, we get responses back from some people saying it gets no better, uh, often from family members. My, you know, my son is now in his 30s and they still have this problem and from individual, you know, people with disabilities themselves. And so we, we certainly hear those same messages about adults as well. And as I say, MENCAP are carrying out a, a survey at the moment. And actually, the Office of National Statistics, I think, have published some information from their lifestyle surveys about the impact of lockdown on disabled adults. And that showed that compared with the general population, disabled adults are more likely to report that the crisis has affected their well-being, more likely to be very worried about the impact of the crisis. 
and they are more likely to be spending too much time alone. So depressing findings there as well, I'm afraid. What I did like, I do like about the Disabled Children's Partnerships and The Secret Life of Us is those films are really positive and it's about showing that positive message. And I think what's a shame is that lockdown has taken us back into like a negative space. Is that something that you guys are finding or working with? Yeah, it, it was a it was a definite deliberate plan in in Secret Life of Us to show that positive, to show to show both sides of it. And we we you know you're always very wary and very concerned about slipping into pity porn, aren't you? And those kind of traps to fall into. So we were keen to show both sides, but we had even with the give it the, with the give it back campaign, we were we were trying to be a bit harder edged about the, the realities and showing the difficulties and being really, really clear in, in, in all our messaging. It's not about having a disabled child. It's not about being a disabled child. There is no reason inherently why, if your family has a disabled child, your life should be terrible and the child's life should be terrible. What we are saying is that the society is not providing the support that it should, should be. And that is the problem. The problem isn't the child. The problem isn't the family. The problem is the support that they are entitled to and should be getting isn't happening. And that was true before lockdown. And sadly, it's even more true during lockdown. I mean, I think that response really feeds into the social model of disability and looking at how, as a society, what can we do to make life equal and fair? Absolutely. That's, that's, that's exactly it. It's been absolutely fascinating, Stephen. I've really, really enjoyed this chat. And actually, I hadn't come across the Disabled Children Partnerships until lockdown and until the survey came out, which it really did get quite a lot of press. And maybe we can link some of the news clips and stuff onto our show notes. I was going to say, yeah, we were delighted with the coverage we got. Um, and Stephen, is there anything else you would like to kind of promote? Where can we find you? How can people get more involved? main thing on is you know follow us on social media we're particularly it's mainly twitter and facebook particularly twitter follow us on there and share your stories and, and we'll, we'll try and help amplify the messages and what are you on twitter we are at dcp campaign brilliant and on facebook uh i think we're at dcp campaign on there as well <laughs> perfect well thank you so much Stephen. thank you for taking the time to talk to us as I say, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. Thank you, Stephen, for coming on today. I um, really enjoyed that episode. Yeah, I felt it was extremely informative and a huge thanks to Stephen. So being so clear with the findings of the survey and telling us about the journey that the partnership has been through during this time. And I think what is interesting, you know, is, is this, the Disabled Children's Partnership wasn't set up for the lockdown. It was set up in, in 2017 to really fight those uh, inequalities and injustices that children with disabilities face in lack of access to care and support and health services that they need. And those things should have been getting better. But due to coronavirus and due to the lockdown, those things have got worse. And I think what we really need to do is to ensure that when we come out of this lockdown, things aren't worse than they were in 2017. You know, that we use our learning from this time to make things better for people with, with disabilities. Yeah, and me and Lucy have been talking a lot about how some of the restrictions put in place from a health point of view haven't necessarily considered the needs of disabled people. I think a good example is 
um, yesterday I was at, at my local kind of like corner shop and they've changed the exit and the entrance and now there's steps on the on the entrance and the ramp is only at the exit whereas before you could use the ramp for entrance and exit and it's just little things like that that can have a huge impact in someone's life and just like Stephen was saying we want things to be getting better and we don't want lockdown to have things spiraling back to a time when things were worse and I also think it it runs the risk of becoming acceptable that for safety reasons disabled people are excluded and I think that is completely and utterly unacceptable we have an opportunity to actually make things better and you know that's just one example that Amber said I saw an example of a pub who's put in little glass or plastic pods that people can sit in to keep them socially distanced but to do that it says they're not big enough for wheelchair users I mean, it's completely and utterly ridiculous and people are being excluded in the name of coronavirus safety. And I think that's outrageous. And bringing it back to the theatre sector, we're currently recording this on Friday, the 3rd of July. And the theatre sector is, you know, kind of in tatters at the moment, wondering what will happen next. And really in regards to access, there was a long way for theatre to go. But since the introduction of relaxed performances in particular in 2009 the access rights for people with learning disabilities to access the theater have started to improve hugely and since the time that we've been formed as frozen light over the last seven years we've seen a huge increase in artists and organizations thinking about diversity within audiences which has been really great to see but there is a huge danger that due to coronavirus and due to the horrendous funding situation that theatres have found themselves in already that access will not be the most important thing on the agenda just trying to stay open will be and we need to make sure that when theatres are able to open that all audiences are still welcome and there is still programming for everyone's needs. Yeah I think that's an absolutely crucial point you know the work we make accessible work is expensive and venues are going to be in tight financial situations but we need to make sure that people aren't excluded because of that in the name of finance or in the name of safety it, it's incredibly important and and as a theatre industry we do have an opportunity in this time to actually make things more inclusive and to make things more accessible and to relook at look at those things so that when hopefully it all does open up it is a more inclusive place so up next on next week's podcast we have sarah walker who is in fact a audience member of frozen light she's a family carer and she's been to several frozen light shows with her brothers so we cannot wait to have her on the show so thank you for listening today. You can find us on all the usual places you'd find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and all your other podcast apps. You can also find it on our website at www.frozenlighttheatre.com forward slash podcasts. Please rate, review and subscribe. You can contact us on email at info at frozenlighttheatre.com. If you'd like to be on the podcast or if you've got any feedback, we would absolutely love to hear from you. And you can also find us on all the social media channels. So you can get us on Facebook at forward slash Frozen Light Theatre or on Twitter 
at Frozen Theatre or Instagram at Frozen Light Theatre. Thanks everyone for listening today. Take care and bye. Thank you. See you next time. Bye.